finished off uh, chapter 12 last time. You remember we were talking in chapter 12 about the problem of spiritual gifts. Uh, the Corinthian church was a carnal church. Um, they had many gifts, but a lot of them they were using in a wrong fashion, in a way that would glorify and honor themselves. And so they had a problem. And then we looked at verses 12 to 31 of chapter 12 when we saw the various principles of the body of Christ. And we talked about that in detail. And today we're going to be talking about the power of love when we use our spiritual gifts, the power of God's love when we use our spiritual gift. Um, This is a subject that we're not going to cover today. We're going to cover this in several weeks the topic of God's love, the most excellent way, is, is, a, is a difficult subject because it's so deep, it's so rich. Um, you could spend months talking about the love of God. Um, and uh, Dave just started a little study on the love of God with the men at the men's breakfast. And I think it would be a couple years before he completes this little <laughs> his studies, his talks to us about the love of God because it is so deep, it is so rich. Um, you could also title this, this message here today, I called it Love the Most Excellent Way, because that's what Paul calls it. But you could also say the absence of love. <laughs> the absence of love. What happens when you don't have the love of God? Well, the first three verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tell us just that. They explain to us what happens when you have all kinds of things, but you don't have this incredible love of God. And uh, let's stand in honor of God's word. I just want to read the first three verses for us, then we'll pray and get started with our message. Um, sometimes it's good to know what you don't know about something, and that's what we're going to find out this morning. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul begins, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Verse 3, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word to our hearts as we look into this text. Pray that you would bless each one, build us up in our faith. And for those who may not know you, I pray that you would bring them to true faith in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. We mentioned last time in our, our study the key of that whole, this whole section, basically, verses 12, 13, and 14 was found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You remember verse 13. Uh, Verse 13. Paul writes there, But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still more, I will show you a still more excellent way. And we showed us, uh, the the word showed us as we studied that, that the grammar here um, is not a command. Paul is not telling the Corinthians, only desire the best gifts. That would go against everything he just said, right? So I know it reads that way in the English, but that's not what the original language, it's not an imperative, it's not a command. It's indicative, it's it's stating a fact. 
He's saying, you are doing this, Corinthians. You are seeking the showy gifts. You're desiring what you think in your own mind to be the gifts that are most important because maybe they're used in front of people. He's not commanding them to seek them. He's stating a fact of what was going on in this carnal church. They were desiring them. They were coveting them. And what he says is what? I got to show you a more excellent way. I have to show you something that's greater than even your spiritual giftedness. A lot of times, many of us who search to desire to know what our spiritual giftedness is, we sometimes overlook maybe the one thing that we really need. (laughs) The one thing that we need more than anything else in this life is we desperately need what? The love of God. We We need that a lot more than we need to know what our spiritual gift is. And yet somehow that gets gets lost in in the search. The gifts are given. They're worked by the Holy Spirit. We've seen that in the believer's life. Um, You know, we don't have to help out the Holy Spirit. He's perfectly capable of showing you what your gift is. Now, we sometimes will give out a little quiz or a little survey kind of a thing, kind of point you in the right direction. You know, maybe showing you what maybe your, your spiritual giftedness is. But that's all it is. It's just a general tool. It's not a test. If you take those things in spiritual gift survey, they call them, if you take them like a test, and it it depends on how you're feeling when you take the test. You know, if you were just around a a bunch of people and they got you all angry and they were against you, and then you took the test and it says, do you like to be around a group of people? Well, no, I don't want to be around anybody right now. So it's, it's purely subjective. But... Sometimes there are some good indicators in there, and we can learn something about ourselves. And we always need to learn more about ourselves. But we have to be careful. We don't have to help the Holy Spirit figure out what gift we have, but we have to be careful that we don't grieve him, that we don't quench the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. Um, And the truth of the matter is that God's love is a more excellent way. That's what Paul says. Now, We showed three things, basically, last time. We showed about the priority of this better way. We first of all said that it's a lifestyle. It involves a way, he says. I will show you a more excellent way. It's not just a a momentary feeling. It's a lifestyle. You know, sometimes when you meet somebody, you say, yeah, we just clicked, you know, vibes. Well, that's not what he's talking about here. God's love is a lifestyle. It goes on, it goes on, it goes on. It's not changed by your feelings. It's there all the time, not just for the moment. And then, secondly, we said that God's love is greater than anything else that we may pursue. It's a more excellent way. We talked about how Paul is using really a a hyperbole here. He's using something that's just a way of an exaggeration. And, matter of fact, that more excellent way there. That excellent is is the very word. It means kind of an exaggeration of that. Now, he's not lying. This isn't lying. He's, He's using it for the point of emphasis, and Paul does that a lot. It means basically that God's love is greater than anything you and I might ever pursue. And usually it takes a long life to finally get to the end of your life and you figure that out. 
you figure out that, wow, I got a lot of stuff, got a lot of friends, I got a, but you know the one thing, I'm, I'm kind of low on my tank of love. Many of us pursue what we think is very important when we're younger. We have expectations we may want to accomplish. Um, sociologists say that we only wind up living to the point of the death of those expectations. So when you have certain expectations, and then those expectations aren't seen, well, you just give up. You get depressed. Um, It's easy to want something so badly and never get it. And to think that somehow, wow, this isn't fair. Life has treated me poorly. Well, you know what? You've actually missed the whole point of life, if that's your take. To love people is far more, far more excellent and worth more than accomplishing anything that you might set as a standard for success in your own life. I mean, the American dream is what? Do the best you can. Buy more, get more, get more money than you had last year. Accomplish mighty great things so you can leave a legacy, you know, Don't just have one house, have one or two, maybe three or four. Get as much as you can. Go for the gusto. That's how we value our success in life. I'm not saying you lay around and be lazy and don't have anything. God doesn't care if we have things. What he's concerned with is when those things have, what, us. (laughs) Solomon, long ago, richest man who ever lived, really, said it very wisely. He says it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. It's just you know, like soap bubbles that just kind of disappear. A smoke that's gone. They're passing away. I mean, we think in this life, well, that's a big deal. I've accomplished a lot. I'm moving up through my company, and I have this, and I have that. See, the thing that is lasting is what you will do in the lives of people. That's what will last. The thing that is lasting and remembered the most will be when you help the most, when you're showing the love of God to other people. So we need God's love greater than anything else we need. It's more excellent. Thirdly, we said that God's love can be seen and understood. He says, I will show you. Remember that? That's kind of encouraging. That God's love can be seen and somewhat understood by us. Um, I mean, it isn't what a lot of people think the love of God is. It's not some gas floating up in the, the atmosphere. Oh, that's the love of God. No. And once in a while, it strikes you in your life, and so you're, you're a little loving that day. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the love of God can be seen, and it can be understood. You say, well, how is that? See, that's why the the Lord takes all this time in chapter 13. This is all he deals with here. He deals with the love of God. And we're going to learn a lot about it. It's very important. Now, in the original language, just before we get into the text, way of introduction, there's four words in the original language, four main words, I should say, for love. There's actually a lot more when you compound those words. We can go on and go on and for, for days about 
different words that are used when they're compounded together. But we're just going to look at, at, at four of them here. And the reason that the Greek language uses four words is, you know, in English, we're very generic, right? I mean, when you speak of love, what are you talking about? You can be talking about anything. I mean, you can say, I love ice cream. I love my dog. I love my wife. Hopefully not in that order, but I'm just saying, you know, it's important <laughs> that you can use that same word for anything. Um, but in the original Greek language, there's different words. First of all, there's a word that's used for sexual love, eros. Doesn't appear in the Bible, by the way. Um, sexual love does, but this word doesn't. Kind of interesting. It talks about giving a sense of intimacy. Um, not in the sinful, crash way the, the, the world looks at it. Uh, it's not talking about the, the, the erotic that the world would look. But when the Bible talks about sexual love, it's something that's beautiful. It's something that's romantic. It's lasting. It's fully satisfying. It ministers to the heart of that individual. And it's meant for the confines of marriage between a husband and a wife. Sexual love. Secondly, we have a word storge, which is, speaks of family love. Family love. It gives you, sexual love gives you a, a sense of intimacy. Intimacy. Family love, or storge, gives you a sense of belonging. It's used in the New Testament in a compound form in Romans 12.10. It says, love one another with brotherly affection. Storge was used by the Greeks among animals as well as families. Um, a love of a parent for a love of a parent for a child. And so family love is very important. We understand that. It gives a sense of belonging. You can see very quickly if you meet someone and maybe they were raised in homes and they were treated poorly. Uh, maybe they didn't have any mother or father at all. Maybe they were orphans. I don't know. They didn't have one to, anyone to love them, train them, or teach them. You can see that. What happens all of a sudden in their lives? What looks real attractive? Gangs, right? They have a sense of belonging. They don't have anything at home, so what do they do? They go out on the streets. And they find a bunch of hoodlums to, to run around with who gives them a sense of belonging. See, it's important we understand that there are needs in people's hearts that the love of God can meet. That's important for us to understand. So we have sexual love, family love. And then thirdly, there's a third word, phileo. We understand this word, friendship love. It gives a sense of value and worth. We have Philadelphia, right? The city of what? Brotherly love. Um, there's nothing wrong with having friends. We need friends. The Bible says there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother, right? Proverbs 18.24. It's important to have friends. Um, now, certainly the Lord is that. He's someone who sticks closer than a brother. But in Proverbs, it's not talking about that. It's talking about someone here in this life, physically with us. And it's wonderful to have someone who loves you even though they really, really know you, right? Those of you who are married know what I'm talking about. It's important to live with a spouse who's a friend. That's probably one of the most important things before a couple would get married to understand is that, you know what, you better be friends first. You better be friends first. 
Because after you're married, your space is invaded with this other person. And all of a sudden, you can't do what you want to do whenever you want to do it, how you want to do it. You have somebody looking over your shoulder going, well, no, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to do it this way. And you better be friends to work through that time. You have two sinful people trying to live together in harmony and under one house, and they're supposed to do it for the glory of, of the Lord. You have to be friends as husband and wife. So we have sexual love, family love, friendship love, and then last one, agape, spiritual love. Um, if sexual love gives you intimacy, family love, belonging, friendship love, value, and worth. What does spiritual love give us? It gives us security. It gives us security, a sense of security. It teaches us that God loves us no matter what. No matter what. It may come as a shock to you, but not everyone in the world is a wonderful person. I'll go even further. Not everyone in the church is a wonderful person. We know that to be true. There are some really, really nasty people. Some of those nasty people even come to church. I always appreciate what... Dr. David Hawking said, he said, if you knew what was in the person of the heart sitting next to you, you would move. Even if it is your spouse. <laughs> Thank God for his grace and mercy. Amen? That covers that wickedness and evil that's in our heart. And so we see these four words that are used for love in the original language. But let's focus in on spiritual love. So I want us to see five things, five, let's say, unique qualities of spiritual love. And it tells us down in verse 8, I know we didn't read that yet, but you can look down there. It says, love what? Never ends. Love never ceases. Love never ends. 1 Corinthians 13, 8. First point here is love, the love of God, spiritual love, is unending. It says, love never fails. I mean, that's the kind of love that we need, right? That's the kind of love that we desire. Just think in your own life how many times in life you've had maybe a relationship with someone fail or cease because of the lack of love. God's love never ends. It's eternal, just like God's eternal. In Jeremiah 31.3, it says, The Lord appeared to him from far away. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Isn't that a wonderful truth? God's love never is going to end for you. God is love, and everything he does is loving in some shape or form. Now, we may not understand it. We may not look at it from this side of glory. Why did God allow that to happen? Why? Hey, for whatever reason, God is a loving God. He declares himself so. It's not only unending, but it's also unconditional. Unconditional. The Bible says that Proverbs 10, 12, love covers a multitude of offenses. Covers all offenses. Um, I don't know if you noticed this, but on some of the shows that have people getting married, and you know, even if you, you, you see a recorded wedding on TV or on your Facebook or whatever, um, 
it seems like the, the wedding bells have changed. They've all of a sudden become conditional. <laughs> kind of like, if I do this, then you, you'll do, you know, if this and that. And, and that's not the love that'll make a marriage last. Because God's love has no if, ands, or buts. It's what? Death doeth part. Right? That's what the Bible tells us very clearly. Now, you may pray for the death of your spouse. God forbid, I don't know. But you got to stick with them. That's what the Bible says. When you're married, you're married. One man, one woman for life. Period. I mean, what a wonderful God we have. His unconditional love touches us. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since what? Love covers a multitude of sins. Or Proverbs 17.9, Whoever covers an offense seeks love. See, when someone does wrong to you, what do you want to do? You want to go tell somebody. I can't believe they did this to me. They said this, and that was just so nasty. But what does love do? Love covers the offense. Love doesn't ever say anything about it. That's the kind of love that God has for us. Romans 5.8, right? But God shows his love for us. In that, while we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. God doesn't sit back and say, okay, I want to love you. I want to forgive your sins, but you know what? You, you're a mess. Just look at you. You're, you. Go get yourself cleaned up and then come back and see me in a week. He doesn't say that. He says, no, come on. Come on. I'll take care of it. The Bible indicates that God loved us even when we didn't even give a thought about him, period. So we see unending love. We see unconditional love. And thirdly, it's unusual. God's love is very unusual. Um, turn over in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. See, most of us, when we talk about love or loving an individual, we usually demand a response from people, do we not? In other words, hey, I'm going to love you, but hey, what, what are you going to do for me? We have a tendency to love who? Those who love us. That's just normal. That's just what we're like. Guess what? God isn't like that. He has an unusual love. God's love is very unusual. Look at what it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? The idea is it doesn't. Verse 18. Little children, let us not love, what's he say, in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, the love of God isn't something you just say to your, your, your spouse when you're leaving the house, love you. Eh. That's not what it is. God's love does things. God's love is action-packed. It doesn't just feel things. See, when we think of love, we think of a feeling. As a matter of fact, that's kind of a hypocritical doctrine that's held by many. Well, you know, I have to feel it first. No, you don't. You need to obey God. That's what we're called to do. If you live by your feelings, you'll be a mess. 
You got the cart before the horse, my friend. We say, well, if, if I feel like loving you, I might be loving. Well, okay, we won't hold our breath on that one, right? I mean, when's that going to happen? That's not God's love. God's love acts. It does what it needs to do, no matter what you are feeling. And the truth of the matter is when, when you're not feeling loving towards someone and yet you choose to obey God, set your feelings aside and say, you know what, I'm just going to shower this person with love anyway, even though in my heart I'm not feeling any, anything. I'm not feeling nothing for this person. But I'm going to shower them with the love of Christ. Holy Spirit, give me the, the, the power to do this because it's not going to come for me. Guess what? When you do that, God rewards that kind of obedience. And what does he do? Pretty soon, he gives you the feeling, the feelings there then. I've seen that in many couples who grow apart in life. We just don't love each other anymore. Who cares? You made a commitment. It's irrelevant what you're feeling toward that other person. You stood before God and you said to death do his part. It doesn't matter what you're feeling. And for those that say, you know what, you're right. We're going to try. We're going to try to rekindle this thing. And they act out of obedience, not out of feeling, because they're not feeling a whole lot of love for each other. But they do it. And guess what? God rewards them. And what happens? Pretty soon they have a profound love for one another. You think, what happened? God's just rewarding their obedience. So unending love, unconditional, unusual. Fourthly, it's an uplifting love. He says there in verse uh, 1 of chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, He says, knowledge puffs up, but love what? Builds up. Love builds up. The love of God is something that edifies people. It doesn't tear them down. The love of God is not like the normal kind of human love that people have. God's love is uplifting. It builds up. That's what we should desire to be seen in our life. That's what we should desire to be shown to other people. This uplifting love of God. Unending, unconditional, unusual, uplifting. Lastly, you knew this was coming, right? It's unselfish. It's unselfish. Lay down our life for our brothers. First John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. What's interesting is that word life in the original language there. You know, we think, wow, yeah, that's, that's talking about somebody who's just laying down their life as a martyr for Christ. No, it's not. That's not what it's saying. That's not what it's saying at all. That word is it's not the word for like a, a living being. It's the word for your soul. We get the word psyche right? That's the original word. It's not talking about your physical life. It's talking about your soul. What does it mean? It means lay down your soul from someone else. Well, how do you do that? You set your own desires apart. You're not selfish. You're not thinking about what you want. You're thinking about what the other person may want. 
See, that's God's love. It's not talking about going out and getting yourself martyred. It's talking about setting your desires aside. And other scriptures support that as well. Do you need that kind of love? Amen, right? It's kind of hard to acknowledge that maybe. But do you need that kind of love? Amen, you do. So do I. We all need God's love desperately. And it's just fascinating that Paul begins chapter 13 by looking at what life might be without that kind of love. Without a love that's unending, unconditional, unusual, uplifting, and unselfish. Well, before we get into this, just give you a brief, brief outline of chapter 13. I think it's there in your, in your notes. In verses 1 to 3, we see that God's love is essential. That's what we're going to look at in the remaining time we have together. It shows that God's love is necessary for all that we say and do. And without it, you know what? Life becomes meaningless and empty. God's love is essential. Secondly, in verses 4 to 7, we'll look at this next week, God's love is explained. It shows that God's love is different from human behavior. And that's a message I'm already working on. It's kind of uncomfortable for me. So just prepare yourself. It's going to be uncomfortable for you too. Um. Because in that text, it talks about is not easily, what, provoked. All right? What I found out was the word easily there is not even in the text in the original King James. It's not there. They just put it in. Basically, not provoked. That raises the bar a little bit, doesn't it? (laughs) That's verses 4 to 7. And then verses 8 to 13 God's love is exalted. It shows that God's love is greater than spiritual gifts. It's greater than faith and hope. It's greater than anything. It's magnified far beyond our ability to even understand or comprehend it. It surpasses knowledge, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. He says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's greater than any human comprehension. And we desperately need it. We need God's love. And as we look at a life without God's love, it's important to realize that you can't walk out of here saying, well, I'm just going to produce God's love in my heart. I'm going to go do what this pastor says. I'm I'm going to become more loving with the love of God. No, you can't do it. It's impossible for you to do it. You're going to be beating your head against the wall by Wednesday if you try to do this. You're going to fall flat on your face if you try. This kind of love, this supernatural love of God comes from only one place, God. That's the only place you're going to get it. You're not going to get it from watching a video. You're not going to get it from going on a hike and looking at nature. See, this love of God is God's very nature. And he is the one that has to pour it out in your life through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to get into the details of all that. So don't think you can just leave here this morning and put into practice God's love without God's help. You'll be very frustrated. But this is the very kind of love that's needed between a husband and a wife, Colossians 3. It's the very kind of love that's needed between parents and children. It's the very kind of love that's needed, you ready, between employers and employees. (laughs) We need God's love. Well, let's look at the first point here, verse 1 get into the heart of these, these, this passage. One thing that is interesting 
is there's one phrase that's repeated three times. It's repeated in verse 1, 2, and 3. If you look at your text there, you can probably see it. But have not what? Love. Every time it says that. It says, if I do this, but I don't have love, do this, if I don't have love, do this, it says it three times. By the way, the, the, the King James uses the word charity. If you have that translation, you're probably looking, well, where's he seeing love? It's the word charity. And a lot of people say, well, they don't understand charity today. I would say it's probably a better word to use than our English word love because it's so generic. The word charity, we kind of understand that, right? We understand what a charity is. We give charitable, what, donations? Um, Charity might be the correct translation of that Greek word agape there instead of love. Um, See, this love of God has one outstanding quality to it. And it's simply this. It continues to give. And give and give and give. And it never needs anything in return. That's an incredible kind of love. See, what God does in our hearts is a charitable contribution, you could say. But you know what? He's not waiting around for the, the receipt. The, you know, he's got to send to the IRS. He, he's not interested in that. God's wonderful love just keeps giving and giving and giving. It doesn't need anything in return. And our English word love is so nebulous it could mean anything to anybody. But agape gives and gives and gives. It never stops. It never quits. It never shuts down. So that's one thing I want you to notice. But secondly, notice the word if. Or in some translations, though. If I speak in tongues, right? Verse 2, if I have prophetic powers. If I give away all that I have. What's he doing here? Well, the primary point here is that it shows that he's using an example that is uh, hypothetical. (laughs) This is a hypothetical example. He's not saying this is true. He's just saying, if you could do this, even if you could, would be a way to say it, but you can't. (laughs) Even if you could do this, I know you can't, but even if you could... And when you begin to study this portion of Scripture, it's amusing to hear some of the teachings that people come up with. It's bizarre. You have people concentrating on how to speak with the tongues of angels. And they're all, that's their whole Christian life. Why speak with the tongues of angels? Really, what is that? I don't know, but I do it. I mean, there's no one who knows all mysteries except our blessed Lord. There's no one who has all knowledge. There's people out there that are trying to have faith to move mountains. We're going to talk about this. The point, it's, it's a hyperbole. It's an exaggeration. And this is something that happens very commonly in Jewish literature. It's called exaggeration for effect. That's what it's called. He's not lying. He's just drawing two completely opposite points to the point of driving a point home. He's making a point by making the contrast to the point so big and so tremendous you can't miss it. 
A lot of times when people come to Christ, they say, well, what book should I read? We'll say 1 John. Why do we send them to 1 John? Well, 1 John's a pretty simple book. It's short, right? Five chapters, easy to read. And the language in it's pretty easy. Now, there are some difficult portions of 1 John, but for the most part, uh, as a matter of fact, if you, if you go to Bible school or you take a seminary class in Greek, where do they start? They start in the book of 1 John. Because it's very easy Greek to understand. It uses words like life and death and love and hate. Simple words. Even though the thought process of 1 John is rather difficult if you read through it. Why? He says things like, well, either you love your brother or you hate your brother. Whoa! That's a big contrast. No wiggle room. No middle ground. Either you're righteous or you're sinful. Either you're children of the light or what? Children of the darkness. You can't have one foot in, one foot out. It doesn't work that way. And in teaching by contrast, it shows the difference in First John between the true believer and one that's not. So make sure that you understand the difference. When we want people to understand the difference of something, we use hyperbole, exaggeration for effect. And that's what Paul is doing here in the first three verses. God wants to drill down into our hearts that you cannot live the Christian life without his love, period. You can't do it. And so many of us are trying to get into so many different things that we think are important, but you know what? We've missed the most important thing of all. And though you may be one of the more intelligent people in the world, if you don't have love, you're not anybody. There's something majorly wrong. That's what the Bible says. No matter what you say, no matter what you do, no matter how big your accomplishments may be, it doesn't mean anything if you're not possessing the love of God. I mean, that's, that's a tough truth to live with. Well, there's three different things here in our text. There's three conclusions that are different. In verse, verse 1, 2, and 3. In verse 1, you see the conclusion, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. He's speaking about our impact. We're going to look at that. Secondly, he says, I am nothing. You know, verse 1 really talks about our, our ability to communicate. You may be gifted communicator, but if you don't have the love of God, you're not going to have much of an impact. Your impact is weakened. Secondly, he says, I am nothing as a conclusion. So first of all, I'm just a clanging cymbal, a noisy gong. Secondly, I'm nothing if I don't have the love of God. Your importance is diminished no matter what you've done. And then thirdly, he says, I gain nothing. In other words, all the involvement that you may have, you may be involved in feeding the poor and helping charities and doing everything. You know what? If you don't have the love of God and you're not doing it with that in your heart, you're not going to gain anything. Zero. Zip. Why? Because you can't live without God's love. It's essential. So let's look at this point. God's love is essential. The first three verses. We want to find out three points here. First of all, without it, our communication is ineffective. Verse 1. Look at what he says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging or a clanging symbol. Now, one thing I want you to see under each point, 
Under each point, we're going to see three subpoints: the unrealistic claim, the actual condition of the Corinthian church, and the obvious conclusion. We're going to see those three things repeated under the next three points we go through. And the first point here is that our communication is ineffective without God's love. Let's look at the unrealistic claim. Remember, he's using hyperbole. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. Well, what's he talking about, the tongues of men? He's talking about what? Human beings speaking. Um, I don't know if you're old enough to remember that, but most of you are. Um, remember that, those commercials? Well, my broker's E.F. Hutton. And when E.F. Hutton, <laughs> what? When E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen, Right? We want people to listen to us when we talk, when we communicate, don't we? As a matter of fact, if you don't want people to listen when you're talking, you know, you, you could probably be easily concluded you're a little, something's wrong upstairs, right? If you're just talking to talk, no one's listening. You don't care for anybody to listen. Talk to yourself, right? We want people to listen to us. But we have to understand, when we talk, sometimes the person listening hears something that wasn't intended. When we are talking, guess what? We aren't learning. If you're in a conversation and you're talking, you're not learning from the other person anything. Um, we're not listening when we're talking. We hear it in classes, right? Hey, is everybody listening? Why do they say that? Because they're about ready to make a point, right? They want you to hear it. We want to communicate, but without God's love, guess what? Our communication is ineffective. No matter how gifted you may be as an order. And take it even further, without God's love, sometimes our communication can downright hurt people. It can injure them profoundly. You know, I've heard people say, well, you know what? That's the truth. Take it or leave it. <laughs> I don't care if you like it or not. I'm telling you the truth. And guess what? Usually they leave it. <laughs> and they leave you too, right? People don't want to be around people like that. Why? Because they're not exhibiting God's love. And we make excuses. But I told them the truth. What am I supposed to do? But without God's love, they didn't get the truth. They're not listening. Why? Because usually we haven't been listening. Matter of fact, when we're in a conversation with somebody and we get frustrated, what do we say? Haven't you been listening to me? Right? That's what we say. And usually what do they say? Oh, I heard every word you said. <laughs> See, without God's love, communication is ineffective. There's so many Proverbs that we can look at. We don't have time. You can do that on your own. Proverbs is filled with advice on how to talk and what we say. When you go to a marriage book, counseling book on marriage, one of the first chapters usually is on what? Communication, right? Talk without love doesn't accomplish anything. See, God's in charge of all this. When we speak without his love, even with Good content. You could be saying good things, right things, the truth. But guess what? If you're, if you're saying them without the love of God, the people are not going to hear it. 
Sometimes I'll hear a voice of somebody either on the radio or maybe on television or whatever, and you just fall in love with their voice. You ever done that? You just, their voice is just so soothing. And I was mentioning that to somebody. You know, I was listening to this program, and you know, this guy was talking. It's just, it's just incredible. And they said, well, what did he say? I said, you know, I have the slightest idea. I just like listening to his voice. It just had a very soothing tone to it. And there's other people who are very cerebral. You know, they're very, they're very intelligent. They're very, uh, you know, brainiacs. And, and they're just constantly listening, listening to every little jot and tittle, every little word. And why are they doing it? To correct you. They're waiting. They're just waiting for bated breath. Okay, we'll wait till the pastor makes mistakes. I'm going to tell him right afterwards. Oh, there it is. He misquoted that or he did this. There's people like that. They're just very cerebral. Some people are be- think they're better because of what they know. We, we place such a high value on knowledge today and even on education. You know, there's a lot of forms of education. And I think our society has, has bought into the fact that, well, there's only one kind of education. You have to go to college. And you have poor young people who are in debt over their eyeballs because they listen to that lie. And they went and they studied something they don't even like. And they got out and they're like, oh, i got to do this for the rest of my life. Because they paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to get some little paper that says, oh, they went to their school. There's a lot of our young people who'd be better off going and learning to be a plumber or a carpenter. Nothing wrong with that. Or an auto mechanic. I mean, they make a lot of money. Right? Have you ever gotten your car fixed or had a carpenter come over? I mean, they make a ton of money. So we don't need to be forcing our children into a, a framework that says, well, the more you know, the more education you have, the better the degree, the more the degrees. Boy, you're just, oh, wow. No. Because there's a lot of people that have all that, and they don't have any common sense whatsoever. First Corinthians 4, 7 Paul asked the questions, what do you have that you did not receive? (laughs) And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Do you know even the knowledge that we have, God gives to us graciously? We shouldn't boast if we're intellectual. I mean, you you can speak with all the eloquence you want. You can use big words that nobody understands, so you have to give the definition after you use them. I never understood people like that. You know, well, let me tell you, you know, well, what that word means, and they spend the next five minutes telling you how smart they are. You know, you have people rushing to your conferences or beating down the door to hear you. That's why, because you're an awesome communicator. You speak words with eloquence and influence. Well, guess what? If you don't have God's love... It's all ineffective as far as God is concerned. The tongues of men. We don't need to put value on that. I've heard a lot of preachers who don't have any education at all, and boy, they'll touch your heart. They'll teach you the Word of God like you've never heard before. It's amazing. Why? Because it's the work of God in their life. Not just the tongues of men, but he says here the tongues of angels. I was flabbergasted as I began to look at different commentaries. What does this mean? trying to figure out what Paul meant when he said the tongues of angels. 
And after several hours looking into it and having all these different arguments, I finally figured out my answer. You know what it was? Who cares? Who cares what he means? It's irrelevant. He doesn't mean it to mean anything. It doesn't matter. That's not even the point of Paul's point in verse 1. I mean, I don't care what the tongues of angels are, and I don't know what they are. That's not his point. What we do know is that angels always, always, always spoke in the language of the people they were talking to. So if there's one thing we know the tongues of angels is, it's a language, a known language. But aside from that, we don't have any more information. I mean, so you have people taking this verse and using it to get immature believers praying for the tongues of angels that this is heavenly language that only a few saints, super saints can possess. If you pray long enough and hard enough, God will give you the tongues of angels. That's ridiculous. That's not even what Paul is saying. Remember, he's giving an unrealistic claim here. No one is a master orator above all men, except the Lord Jesus. No one can speak in the tongues of angels. And he says, even if you could, that's his point. Even if you could do that, guess what? Your actual condition, Corinthians, is what? What's he say? But you have not love? You don't have love? You could be doing all this, Corinthians, and not have love. If you could speak words of eloquence as a man, which you can't. And even if you could speak with the tongues of angels, which you can't, but have not love, you don't have anything. That's the conclusion. He says there, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You may think you're so eloquent or whatever, but if you don't have the love of God, you know what people are hearing is clang, clang, clang. This is very real to me because early on in my ministry, I was invited to play at a a worship conference with another band. It was kind of a concert. It wasn't a worship worship conference. It was kind of a band. And um, Lorna was in it, a couple other people from another church. And they put the keyboards right, like right over here in front of the drummer. Okay. And they weren't electric drums. They were loud, <laughs> the kind of drums that Ken likes to play that we won't let him play, <laughs> but the, the real drums, you know, with the cymbals and, you know, even, even as an electric cymbal, when you play that cymbal, man, it just cuts through the mix. So you got to tone it down. And I remember standing there and this guy's just beating on his cymbal. I don't know what kind of cymbal it was. I couldn't even hear after five minutes. That was before you had in-ear monitors and all that. So, you know, that was back when you had a sound guy and he had to make the mix for everybody and you had four wedges and you could never have it loud enough. So the drummer, turn me up, I can't hear. And the bass player saying, turn me up. And I'm saying, I I can't hear either, turn me up. So you got this volume of noise. And I remember that cymbal just cutting through all that. And by the end of the concert, I just had a major headache. It was just this clanging noise after a while. That's the example he's giving here. He's saying, you know what, if you don't have the love of God, you you may be trying to communicate 
the best you can, but guess what? It's just like a clanging cymbal. Secondly, he says, without the love of God, our understanding is incomplete. Look at what he says in verse 2. This is kind of neat. He says, if I have prophetic powers, some of you may have the word gift there. It's not there in the original language. That's why it's italicized. And understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Remember, the same thing. He gives an unrealistic claim. He says, if, if I have prophetic powers. Um, Most gifted men of God are not exempt from ministering in love. You know, some pastors, you, I look them up on YouTube once in a while, Hellfire and Brimstone, they get up there, and they're just mean. I mean, they're, they're preaching the word of God, but they're just mean. Their demeanor's mean. I remember watching one guy, man, he, he got right out from the pulpit and walked down at some young man that was sleeping. Just chewed him out right in front of everybody, like in a, with a nasty spirit. You know, we're not exempt from ministering in love. We're probably more obligated to minister in love as a result of that. Um, the prophet should speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15 says. So the power behind what we say and what we do is our motive. And it has here that you're, you're speaking the word of God, that you're, you're, you're using the word of God to edify people. <clears throat> if you want to look at a study further, it's just kind of a fun study to do, go in the Old Testament and look, compare the prophet Balaam, who was a prophet in the Old Testament, with the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, the prophet Balaam, um, he knew the true God. He knew God's truth. But guess what? He had no love for God's people. Zero. So he was always trying to curse Israel. just miserable, and God had to teach him a lesson. And then you look at Jeremiah's ministry and what he is. He's in stark contrast to Balaam. He was known as what? The weeping prophet, right? Not because he had a bunch of problems, um, but because of the wickedness of the people. Uh, because they refused to turn to the Lord. And because of the punishment that he had to prophesy against them. He wept over them. Um, as much as Jesus later wept over Jerusalem. See, without the motivation of love in God's sight, you're just causing a bunch of commotion as a prophet. So be careful. You use the love of God when you're teaching the Scriptures. Also, understand all mysteries. This isn't something mysterious. Mysterion in the original language is something that was hidden in the past, but now is revealed. There's a lot of examples of this in Scripture. You think of the incarnation, the mystery of God in human flesh, 1 Timothy 3.16. It says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, speaking of Jesus. How does God... The God of the universe localized himself in a physical body. How is that possible? That's a mystery. Or the mystery of the body of Christ. We talked about that before. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. How are you going to put the Gentiles and the Jews in one body, God? That doesn't even make any sense. That's a mystery. What happens in the church the modern-day church, Gentiles pretty much control everything, how the body functions, how the church is run. And when Jews are saved, they're brought into the, the church, and they're kind of looking around going, well, I don't really agree with that, I don't agree with that. But they adapt. Why? 
for the fellowship. All right? There's a lot of things probably we do as Gentiles within the church that is offensive to those of the Jewish faith. Um, But you know what? We miss the fact that we're one not because of our interests, right, or our giftedness or our backgrounds. We're one because the Holy Spirit has made us one in Christ. That's what makes us one. We share that fellowship as the body of Christ. Now, naturally, we're always prone to stick to our little group, are we not? I mean, that's just what we do. You see it even simply here on Sunday mornings over in the fellowship hall. I can tell you right now where you're going to sit, who you're going to be sitting with. I mean, that's kind of cute, but it's kind of sad, too. It's sad, especially when you walk in the fellowship hall and you see somebody who's visiting the church sitting at a table all by themselves. And nobody has the common sense to get up from their little group and go over and sit with them, just so they're not sitting alone. That's just common courtesy. But we're so used to getting in our little group because it's comfortable, right? Um, I think we need to go visit a foreign country. We need to go live in a foreign country for a little bit. It's not comfortable. Yet at the same time, it's kind of intriguing. It's kind of fun. I remember when we went to India. People, for the most part in India, they eat their food with their right hand. They don't pick up a fork. They just eat it with their fingers. It's kind of different. Growing up in America, we don't do that usually. But you know what? The more I watch it, there's a real art to it. There's an art to eating with your fingers, and they have it down. I mean, they just know how to do it. And whenever we go over there and we'll eat a meal, there's always, they're always very courteous to us as foreigners because they realize we probably don't eat with our fingers, so they'll put a fork down and, and, and a spoon or whatever and give us the silverware. But it's, it's uncomfortable, to be honest, sitting there eating with a fork and everybody else is eating with their fingers. You're kind of going, oh, should I be eating with my fingers? It's a lot easier to sit around people that everybody eats with a fork. Right? So sometimes we, we get a little uncomfortable. But the point is simply that you're not going to understand all these mysteries that God has for us. And then we're not going to have all knowledge. That's the last thing here, or one of the last things here he talks about. He says nobody has all knowledge. He's using hyperbole. Matter of fact, in Colossians 2, 1 to 3, at the end there, he says, Assurance of understanding, knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, you and I will never have full knowledge. Only Christ has that. Matter of fact, in 2 Peter 3.18, we're told to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so you have prophet, you have all wisdom, all knowledge. Then he says, all faith. If I have all faith, even as to remove mountains. This is a fun one because, man, when you hear people dealing with this scripture, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I can just go out there and just pray in Jesus' name and that mountain will be moved. That's not what he's saying. Not dealing with that. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 17, verses 14 to 21, he talks about this. Jesus talks about this. Remember, we're saved by faith, so we what? We live by faith, right? So faith is a big factor. And it says in Matthew 17, And when the crowd came to him, a man came up to him, kneeling before him, and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures, and he suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire. He's often in the water. He's possessed, is what the problem is. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. 
And Jesus answered, he says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring them here to me. He's a little fed up, right? Verse 18. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. That was the miracle. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately, probably afterwards a little bit. Hey, Jesus, uh, you know, we tried that. It didn't work. Why, Why couldn't we cast that demon out? And he said, because of your little faith. Your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have the faith like a grain of a mustard seed, if you've ever seen a mustard seed, it comes in a little pod, and then you break the pod open, these little seeds inside, they're tiny. You have the grain of a mustard field. Seed, it says, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. What's he doing? He's using a hypothetical illustration. He's not saying you're going to go out and move the geography of the land around. He's using it as a hyperbole. And even over in, in Matthew 21, when you talk about moving mountains, it not only has to deal with casting out demons, but it even deals with cursing a fig tree. In Matthew 21, verses 18 to 22, it says, In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it, and he found nothing on it but leaves. Only leaves. That depicts a lot of Christians' lives, doesn't it? Only leaves. thought that would be a good message. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled and said, How did this fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say, what? To this mountain. He uses it again. Same illustration. Be taken up and be thrown into the sea. It will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Once again, he's using a hypothetical, hyperbole, to draw home the idea that faith is important. But guess what? Even if you could move a mountain by your faith, right? Even if you could do that, even if you had all knowledge, If all those things were true, all understanding, you could use prophetic powers, remove mountains. But guess what? The actual condition is, and you have not love, Corinthians, you're nothing. You're nothing. That's his conclusion. It deals with your importance. You thought you were good. You thought you were some big guy because you could pray and move that mountain. Well, guess what? If you don't have love, you're nothing. So our communication is ineffective. Our understanding is incomplete. And I think that's something we learn the older we get. Our understanding is incomplete. I mean, I've had to go back several times and listen to something when reteaching a certain scripture. And then I realize while I'm looking at my notes and I'm listening to my message, and I'm like, wow, I got that one wrong. How did I, where did I come up with that? See, we don't have all knowledge. The older you get, the more you realize there's something more than just knowing everything. Because knowing everything can make you puffed up and proud. And you know what? People aren't really impressed by that. 
Nobody likes a know-it-all. No, they, sometimes they're nice and they come up and, oh, you're pretty smart. and all, you know, They're nice to you because they know that's what you want to hear. But inside they're going, get away from me. You know, you puffed up prideful person. If they were honest, that's, how they'd, that's what they'd say. See, it doesn't matter how much you know if you don't have the love of God. You've missed it. And thirdly, without the love of God, our giving is insufficient. Even if I give away everything I have, Paul says, if I deliver up my body to be burned... And by the way, in the original language, that could also, that word burned could also be the word proud. So we think, oh, they're talking about you know, being a martyr once again. It may not mean that. It may mean you may be boasting about how much you've done. And even if I do this, it's, it's a boasting attitude. It's unrealistic. Augustine said that there are two verbs that build two empires. One is to have, and the other one is to be. I mean, when you stop and you you think about that, I mean, that's really what strikes true in people's hearts. They want to use people to build their own little work. And that's all they're, and once they're done, they dispose of the people. That happens so many times, even in ministry, when really we should be using our work to build and edify the people. That's what we're called to do. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says so much. He says, you know what, if you you give, give in secret. Don't be out there boasting about how much. I mean, everybody likes generous people. I mean, I like givers a lot better than I like takers, to be honest with you. I mean, who wouldn't, right? But if you do all that and you have not love, he says, you're not going to gain anything. In other words, your involvement means nothing. So Paul is very clear here. He's introducing this subject of love. And he's basically telling us that, you know what? You have to understand that God's love is essential. It's essential. And if you don't have it, then you need to start looking in the right place. You need to start looking to the Lord. Father, we pray that you would minister to our hearts your truth. We thank you for this introduction to this chapter. And Lord, we thank you that your love is essential for our lives as believers, especially. It's not an option. We don't get to choose not to love people just because we don't get along with them or maybe we don't like the way they act or look or whatever. Lord, you've called us to one body, the body of Christ, and you've called us to be joined together, not because we like certain things or we don't like certain things or we vote for certain people or we don't vote for people. That's irrelevant. We're brought together as the body of Christ because of your work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we are saved by one Savior and we are joined with him in one body. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. I pray that you would speak in a loud volume to their heart, to their mind, even now. That without your love, without Christ, they are nothing. They have no hope. Their sins are not forgiven. And they are looking at an eternity in hell filled with torment and turmoil and 
We don't want anyone to go to hell. So, Lord, I pray that you would show them their need of a Savior. Show them their inefficiency to save themselves. And, Lord, that you would point them to the only Savior there is, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would do that work of salvation in their heart. And, Father, we thank you as we look around. We see the world disintegrating, Lord, that one day we will be out of here. Lord, you promised to come back for your church, and I pray that we would be um, faithful to that day to live lives that are honoring to you in every way and that the love of God would be expressed in our lives through the power of your spirit. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen, amen. Let's